Welcome to the Leaders of Interest podcast with your host, Jonathan J.J. Gerald. This is the podcast for relevant leaders, and now your host, J.J. Mr. George Pratt, how are you this morning? Thanks for taking the time to speak to me. I am very well and excited to speak to you. Yeah, I was very excited to get you on the podcast as well, because I know you are not only going to impress us, but you're going to delight us this morning. That's a strong claim. Let's hope you that. <laughs> I set you up there, didn't I? Hey, you would did. you tell us a little bit about yourself and let the listeners know some of the good tidbits about you? Sure. I spend my life trying to contribute to individuals, knowledge, and joy. And in terms of individuals, it is my family and some very cool stuff that I've done through the Red Cross, which is probably a different conversation. But the part that is perhaps most interesting to you and to your listeners is that I spend a lot of time with executives moving into new roles and we help them accelerate their progress there. We call it on board. That's the individuals. In terms of knowledge, I write business books and articles, and I know we'll talk about at least some of those books and maybe some of those articles. And then in terms of contributing to joy, I write musical plays. Wow. What about any of your plays? Where can we find some of those? Well, they're still to come. One of them is uh, is going to be produced by our local theater company in Stanford, Connecticut, called The Man with the Glass Heart. So we'll have another one of these conversations about five years from now when I'm famous on Broadway. But for the moment, we should probably focus on the onboarding. <laughs> well, we no, certainly hope that happens. <laughs> well, hopefully you don't get too big that you're not able to come back and talk on a podcast. I'd be happy to play any time. <laughs> well, as, before we get into your book, I always like to ask some icebreaker questions. I think i got four of them for you. So let's get into it so we can get into your book. Are you ready? Yes, sir. All right, just a quick one. Would you rather lose your wedding ring or your cell phone? My cell phone. <laughs> Probably a good answer. The next one is, finish this sentence for me. If I won the lotto today, I would... Probably not change my life a great deal. Is that right? Yes, sir. What do you think you'd do with That's some of the money? Question. I've asked myself throughout my career, and I say, if somebody dropped $100 million on me tomorrow, what would I change? And if the answer is that there are a couple of things I would change, I try to change them as much as I can without the $100 million. Wow, good. Tell us the oddest thing in your drunk drawer. Clearly, the script to my first musical, which belongs in the junk drawer, and everybody that's ever read it insisted it's there and never sees the light of it. <laughs> They're wrong. You know, once I become famous, then we'll bring that one out, and everybody will realize how good it is, but for the moment, it needs to live in the junk drawer. <laughs> good, good. And then the final is, tell us about your most embarrassing moment. I was in uh, boarding school in the United States, and we were re-looking at our curriculum, and my parents took me to England. I was 13 years old. They took me to England, and so I wrote the headmaster of a boarding school in England called Eton and said, hey, let me come meet you. You know, we're doing some things in our curriculum. And I went in to meet this man, and I had Sherry with him in his office, which was lovely and very interesting. And then he took me into lunch, and lunch looked like something out of Harry Potter, this, you know, just big, old room, and there were all these scholars standing in absolute silence and attention at their tables, dressed in gowns as we walked in, and he walked in first, and I followed him as his honored guest, even though I was 13 years old. And I was looking around at all these people and the windows and the ceilings and walked down the sort of center aisle up to the head table and, of course, did not notice that the head table was up a six-inch step. And the oh, next no. thing I knew, I was flat on my face, and there was not a peep, not a 
town <laughs> in the United States, there would be howling, and I had to live with my embarrassment all by myself. <laughs> I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. You know, it works either way because it was pretty funny unless you were the guy who was flat on your face. <laughs> now, how old were you when that happened? Thirteen. And you've had no other embarrassing moments that trumps that, huh? No, no. You asked for my most embarrassing. That's <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Let's get into it. Now, I want to ask you the next question is a question that we always ask every guest, and that is if you could contrast your best boss and your worst boss for us. Yeah, my best was Harry, and what was wonderful about Harry was his discipline was truly value-adding, and he'd earned that. He'd earned the right to do that because of his talents and his knowledge and his skills coupled with his compassion. So this guy really cared, was really focused on the cause, really believed in people and me, and he was great to work with. And the contrast would be a guy named Jim. He kind of destroyed value in people, and it was based on his dicta. He had his own misplaced sense of self-worth. He thought he was much better than he was. His values didn't match mine. Harry was great in the absolute and great for me, and Jim was both bad for me and I'm pretty sure just bad in the absolute. Great. Well, let's get into your book, First Time Leaders. And maybe we'd start with, can you tell us who it was intended for? Can you tell us what it's about? How's that? Well, it's not just First Time Leaders because it's really about the basics of leadership. And because those basics of leadership always apply, it is, yes, primarily for First Time Leaders, but it's also for anyone that needs to or wants to take a fresh look at those basics. Use an American football analogy. The basics are blocking and tackling. And as you get into it, and if you're heading towards the Super Bowl, you still have to pay attention to blocking and tackling. So first-time leader is, it's intended for first-time leaders and those interested in the blocking and tackling, which is different, a sort of step about. So the fundamental premise, well, there's a couple of things. But one is leading requires entirely different strength than does managing. And this book outlines the steps, the strategies, the thinking that will help managers become leaders by uniting their team around a shared purpose. Think about this. A lot of people mistakenly assume that you need charisma to be an effective leader, and you either have it or don't. I noticed on your, your profile that you talk about the Gallup strengths. So think about talent. So some people are talented in charisma, which, of course, is not a Gallup talent, but some people might have the talent for it, I and mean, other people can't get it. Well, this is completely false. You don't need charisma. Charisma might help you for a short time, but the long-term path to effective leadership lies in brave framework that I know you're going to ask about. And it's all about identifying a cause and rallying the team around it, essentially inspiring and enabling others in pursuit of a cause. And let's get into that brave framework because I love the analogies and I love using the acronyms to help me remember and learn. So if you would, take us through the brave framework. Well, it's good that you like acronyms because this is an acronym. It's a framework designed to help first-time leaders successfully build their team by uniting them around a shared purpose. So the acronym is B is for behaviors, R is for relationships, A is for attitudes, V is for values, B is for the environment. And the idea is that if you consider and analyze each component, that will help you as a first-time leader discover the shared purpose and incorporate it into the organization's larger strategy and then the implementation. Well, sticking with your core framework, is there any one of those out of the behaviors, relationships, attitudes, values, or environment that is most important? I think the bedrock is values. 
And actually, let me take you through the five, and it'll help you. The ideas go outside in, but we'll get to that next. So behaviors are the actions that make a real lasting impact on others. That's the thing that produces the results. On the other hand, relationships are the heart of leadership. If you can't connect, you can't lead. So that would be my second choice if you'd let me pick two. I'd go with relationships second. Attitude incorporates the strategic posture and culture choices around how to win. So choices, they're pretty important too. But the one I picked was values because the values are the bedrock of a high-performing team. If you're not clear on what really matters and why, you can't do anything else. That's why I picked that one. But then the environment sets the context for everything else by understanding where you're playing. So they're all important and, and wow. they work together. But if you force me to pick one, I'm going to pick values, what matters and why. Well, others might disagree, but they have the wrong values. So on the five components, how are you defining it? What does a behavior look like? Well, behavior, it's an action. Yep. So a behavior is something that somebody does that makes a real impact. Never confuse activity with impact. Just because you're doing stuff doesn't mean it's going to make an impact on anybody. So we really care about the behaviors that make the impact. Take me into relationships. What does that look like? That's connecting with others. And at bottom, at its core, the heart of leadership is relating to others. And it's about connecting. So this gets into a lot of communication, gets into a lot of messaging, it gets into building adept teams, acquiring, developing, encouraging, planning, and transitioning them. That's relationship. But what does the attitudes look like in your mind? So attitude is, it was the weakest one on the acronym. Probably could have called it something else. It's the choices. The attitude is the posture. It's are we going to be proactive or are we going to be a little more responsive? It's the strategic choices. What's our attitude and strategy? What are we going to be best in the world at? And then it's all the culture choice. When you put them all together, this is where you figure out how to win. Take us through the values and the environment, how those look in an organization. The values are really becomes the purpose. We do a lot of work with CEOs, and the idea there is the number one job of the CEO is to own the vision and the values. Where are we trying to get to? What really matters? And if you've ever listened to any of Simon Sinek's stuff, why? People engage with the why. Why does this matter? So it's the cause. And then environment is the context for all that. And that's what's going on in terms of consumers and customers and our own capabilities and the competition, the world around the world around us. Wow, good, good stuff. So how do we put brave into practice? Outside in is you've got to start with the analysis of the environment. You've got to get clear on where you're going to play and who you're going to compete with. What problem are we going to solve? That's step one. Step two, then, is aligning the team around those shared values and what success will look like. At this point, what you want to achieve and why. Third step is the attitude which is all about the strategy and the organizational posture and culture, once the strategy is set, then execution happens through relationships and behaviors. So attitude's the pivot. So environment and values feed into the attitude, and then relationships and behaviors feed out of it. Relationships is how you communicate the strategy internally and externally and delegate appropriately. This also involves acquiring, developing talent. It's all the stuff we've talked about before in relationships. And then behaviors are putting the strategy into action. Arguably, everything up to this point is theoretical gibberish until something actually gets done. So behaviors is the art of getting things done 
through other people with and some effective leadership and management. And the end result is an actionable plan that helps produce results, not just a manager that delegates, but a leader that inspires and enables others around a shared purpose and enables them to do their best work. You hit on something. At the end of the day, every leader is paid for that big R word, and that is results. Yeah, it's not just what you get done, it's how you get it done. There's the wake analysis of leaders, where there's some leaders that plow through organizations like a speedboat leaving debris in their wake. They get results, but they create a lot of pain along the way. Other leaders lead stronger people in their wake, and people that have worked with them, work with them, are stronger than they were before, and they are stronger afterwards. That's what you want to leave in your wake. That's getting results and doing it in the right way. Good point. When I was first put into leadership, first of all, I didn't apply for it. I was brought in and said, hey, you're the next leader. Here's your team. Run with it. I automatically had all these huge misconceptions that I was going to change the world, right? Like I was going to make these big impressions and everyone was just going to immediately fall in behind me because I was a leader. How does first-time leader help dispel some of these misconceptions that people have when they become a first-time leader? I think one of our fundamental premises is that no one will follow anyone else anywhere until they have earned the right to lead. And just being given a title does not give you the right to lead. You have to almost take a brave approach to your team where you have to understand their context and you have to understand what matters to them and why. And then you have to make your own choices around how you're going to lead them because different people at different times require different leadership. And then, and only then armed with all that, you have to connect with people, and if we've got more time, I can talk to you about uh, one of my emerging theories of engagement. Then can you get them to do what they need to do? Well, let's talk about that engagement, because that's huge to me. Let's go ahead and talk about that. So it is huge, but I would argue it's too blunt a tool. A lot of people are saying, yeah, we need engaged employees. But as I've been thinking about this, I think there are three different levels. So you start with people that are disengaged or engaged with the wrong thing. I mean, they're a problem. We get that. The first level of engagement is just people that are compliant. These are the ones that are playing it safe, and they show up, and they do what they need to do and no more. They're causing no harm, but they're not really helping all that much. The next level up are the contributors. And these are people that have almost stepped one step up on that hierarchy and their self-worth is involved helping others. They want to do things for others and that, that's great because they're contributing. Organizations entirely contributors, you're in great shape. The third level, the top level, is people that are committed to the cause. And these are the people that are going to drive you crazy because <laughs> they care, well, and crazy in a good way because they care more about the cause than they do you as the leader. These are the ones who are going to break the rules, buck the system to get done what really matters. And those are the people that drive you into the future. Thanks for sharing that with us. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, how would you say that the first-time leader is different from the other leadership book or even other titles that you've written? It's different in two ways. One, it's got this brave leadership framework on the inside. And I actually originally wanted to call the book Brave Leadership, and Wiley said the world doesn't need another general leadership book. It needs a book focused on first-time leaders. So the brave leadership framework, it's so simple and so powerful that a lot of people are adopting it and using it. So that's different. And then the second thing that's different is this is not first-time manager. This is not how to do the basics. This is really about helping people as they go into those early leadership roles or any leadership role, 
skip the stuff where they're trying to tell people what to do, skip the stuff where they're trying to persuade people what to do, and really focus on leading as inspiring and enabling. And so I think it has a very a different attitude, different approach. And then I tell these really cool stories because I plagiarized 60% of the book, which was just, <laughs> I mean, you remember the old days when you plagiarized stuff, you had to retype it. Now it's just cut and paste. So I just cut and pasted 60% of it. <laughs> so, wow. So you wrote your book fairly quick then, huh? Uh, it was three weeks. <laughs> the first draft, start to finish three weeks in some ways. But what I plagiarized was all my Forbes articles. I've written over 200 articles for Forbes. And I wanted to illustrate the points with stories. And I realized that instead of masking stories or making up stories, I had almost 200 people that I'd talked to, and they'd all talk to me on the record so I could use their stories. So I just pulled the stories from Forbes that would illustrate the points. And actually, I cheated. So not only did I plagiarize, but I cheated. Because as I got into the book and realized I was missing stories, I'd go off and interview people for Forbes to fill in the stories that I needed. Hey, that's perfect. Well, people liked it. Yeah, it was good. I wanted to, since I am in, in HR, and I absolutely love it, and I love the onboarding process, but just stay with me for a second because I have a couple questions with you about onboarding. First of all, the first question is sometimes you, you hear people say that onboarding is like a marriage where two people come together and we commit to form this union, if you will. But I almost see onboarding as the marriage, and then as people continue in the organization, the marriage kind of crumbles apart. And we all know that you can't stay in love at the same level of love that you have when you get married or when that relationship starts. So help us walk through onboarding and why it's so successful. It's not successful. 40% of new leaders fail in the first 18 months. They fall out of love and they either get fired, forced out, or quit. So, And we haven't been able to move that. Now, the people that my little organization, Prime Genesis, has worked with, we've reduced that failure rate from 40% to below 10%. So onboarding does done right work, but onboarding done poorly does not. And from, I guess we look at it from two sides, but if I look at it from the organizational side, from with an HR standpoint, we think there are five steps. Align, acquire, accommodate, assimilate, accelerate. And onboarding in our perfect model starts before the first contact between the organization and the person being onboarded. Like, think before the first date. And what has to happen is the manager of this new person needs to get the organization aligned around what they're really trying to do. Why do we need this person in the first place? What's their role? That's step one. Then, the way they acquire each other, call this courting, matters a lot because it's starting the onboarding. The relationship actually starts during the courting. And so the way you interview people, the way you establish that connection with them, that counts too. Then once you've offered them the job, one of the places that still a surprising number of people screw up on is accommodating them. And accommodating is making sure that the new employee has everything he or she needs on day one to do their job. One of the most astounding stories on this was the, the guy that joined IBM and on his first day wandered down to the training center. And this was in Purchase, New York, so they have this beautiful campus, and you go down the hill literally through the woods to this training center that looks like it's a cabin out in the woods. And he knocks on the door, goes to the door, and the guard says, can I see your ID, please? And the, the new guy goes, well, I don't have my ID yet. It's my first day. And the guard says, well, you can't get in. Can't, you're not allowed in. And the guy goes, no, it's my first day. If there was ever a day that anybody needed to be in the training and development center, it'd be their first day. Can you make an exception? And the guard goes, listen, I don't care if you're the CEO of the company. You are not getting into this building without an ID. And the guy goes, I am the CEO of the company. And oh, Bruce no. Kirshner, 
on his first day as CEO of IBM to make a point about how important training and development was, wandered down to the Learning and Development Center and didn't get in. Now, there is so much wrong with this story. Like, what moron let the CEO walk down the hill to the Training and Development Center without calling ahead and saying, hey, you know that corporate policy? Make an exception in this case. Yeah, sure. So that's accommodation. And all this happens before day one on day one. Then there's assimilation. So accommodation is making sure that people can do work. Okay, we've got to have the wedding ring. For those people to choose to lose their cell phone instead of their wedding ring, make sure we get the wedding ring, <laughs> accommodate them, and, and consummate them. Well, not consummate them, but whatever. Then, and then you've got assimilation, which is enabling people to work with each other. This is helping them fit in. This is helping them meet the people they need to meet. This is Far more than just, here's a list of 10 people that you should go talk to. I could go on forever about this, but assimilation is a big piece. What's happened is people started defining onboarding as the day one stuff, and they started doing the accommodating. Then they woke up and realized, wow, we, we need to assimilate as well and help them meet the rest of the family. But they forgot the last piece, which is accelerating. And they forgot that a marriage doesn't happen on the day of the wedding. You have to follow through. You have to pay attention. You have to help these people accelerate their progress not just the first day, not just the first week, not just the first hundred days, but for as long as you can. And that's why a lot of these things fail. They fail because people didn't, the manager didn't get people aligned in the first place, didn't acquire them the right, right way, tried to pretend to be something different than what they are, didn't accommodate their needs, didn't enable them to do work, didn't pay enough attention to assimilating them in and helping them work with others, or dropped the ball and didn't follow through and didn't remember the 25th and 50th anniversary. Well, yeah, that would be bad, wouldn't it? Great. Thank you for taking us through that. I think we should schedule another podcast to talk specifically about that because that is huge. I think the onboarding process makes or breaks a new employee. Yes, sir, it does. Hey, I wanted to ask you, considering all your speaking, your training experience, what's your best advice for a new leader? Focus on the cause. Yeah. Not about you. It's not even about the team. It's about inspiring and enabling others to do their absolute best together to realize a meaningful and rewarding shared purpose, the cause. Yeah. George, who's doing something right now that you feel is interesting? Who are you following? Jim Cornelson. And this is a little self-serving, but Jim Cornelson is building a whole business around helping first-time leaders based on workshops and coaching to help them accelerate their progress. I well, find that interesting. Yeah, we'll have to check him out. Then I want to ask you a personal question. We are all on this journey, right? And someday it's going to end for every single one of us. What does George Bratt hope to be known for? Oh, easy. Contribution. It's right back to the first question. I want to leave this world with people thinking that I contributed to individuals, to knowledge, and to joy. Wow, good. What's the best way for our listeners to connect with you and find out a lot more about you? So I am frighteningly findable. Our website is primegenesis.com. So if you go there, there are links to everything, phone numbers, emails, whatever. If you Google me, I come up and you'll find books, articles. I'm really very easily findable. I know uh, you want to get out there one more thing that you offer, and those are those book, those executive summaries of your book? I do those, yeah. So we're happy to give those to anybody. Just send us an email and ask for them, and there are links all over the website on you know, things you can click through, and then it says send us the executive summaries. The executive summaries of, I think, all our books, if not most of them. Great. Well, we certainly appreciate your time this morning, that's for sure. Delighted to talk to you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Be sure to look us up online at leadersofinterest.com. Become a mentor of mentors by rating us in iTunes and Stitcher. 
Your five-star rating helps us invest in leaders just like you. See you next time. 